Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. You know, I still, to, you know, this is two days later after the collapse, I still have this deep sense of worry and failure um, and, and wonder about what the consequences are of our agreement not being able to land in the way that we had hoped it would, it would land. Failure has not been a big part of Senator Chris Murphy's story. Murphy, now a second-term U.S. senator, has had a career that looks more like one long, uninterrupted arc of success. At the age of 25, he won office in Connecticut's State House. Fifteen years later, in 2013, just a few months short of his 40th birthday, he took the oath of office for the U.S. Senate. Since then, Murphy has volunteered for some of the toughest assignments on Capitol Hill. He played a central role in multiple gun control efforts following the Sandy Hook shooting in his home state, but always came up short. Then, after nearly a decade of dead ends, he teamed up with GOP Senator John Cornyn to pass an historic gun safety bill in 2022. More recently, and very much in the news this week, was Murphy's latest difficult assignment, one he shouldered with Republican James Lankford and independent Kirsten Cinema, negotiating a border security bill. I got a deal done on guns, first time in 30 years. How hard can immigration be? The answer is much harder. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Chris Murphy was the Democratic lead on the much-anticipated bipartisan border legislation that was supposed to sail through the Senate and unlock funding for the war in Ukraine. But everything went sideways this week when Republicans, at Donald Trump's insistence, abruptly turned against the bill. I visited the senator in his office in Hart on Thursday when the wounds of the whole ordeal were still fresh. He told me the inside story of the construction of the bill and the intense pain he experienced when the whole thing collapsed. He took me into the rooms where James Lankford's scrupulous negotiating tactics set the tone. Oh, yeah. No, if you negotiate with James Lankford, you uh, are negotiating text, not ideas with James. And explained the unique role that Kirsten Cinema played throughout the month-long process. Cinema is trying to figure out a way to get the two of us on the same page. She's got her own independent thoughts about what needs to happen on the border, but she is also somebody that is you know, very squarely focused on getting a result. Finally, he told me why he thinks Joe Biden's position on immigration is completely misunderstood and whether all of these high-profile negotiations are really an audition for higher office. Anything like this in your career that has been as disappointing? I've never seen an about face like this at any time in the 20 plus years I've been in politics. Uh, I mean, on Sunday afternoon, we had 20, 25 Republicans. We thought we could get to support the bill. Senator McConnell had been in the room negotiating the bill with us for months. And within 48 hours, we had four yes votes and Senator McConnell had voted against the bill that he wrote. Let's go back a little bit. I want to talk about, unpack the, the sort of process of putting this together. I haven't seen you speak that much about that. And maybe we can get into some of the nitty gritty on that. I remember in 2013, spending a lot of time reporting on the Gang of Eight 
And I remember doing a reconstruction of how that bill came together and interviewed seven out of the eight. Rubio didn't want to do the interview. But it was very interesting to me that they all had different strengths. It was almost like uh, Ocean's Eleven-like team, Ocean's Eight. What did each of you bring to this? You, you Cinnamon Langford. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a progressive. Um, yeah. And I'm somebody that cares about preserving uh, immigration and asylum. I also haven't spent my career working in and around immigration. So right. it wasn't, I also, def- wasn't an issue that you're um, defined with. Right. So I, by. I brought general progressive values to the table, but I also brought a bit of a fresh perspective. Um, yeah. I'm also somebody that thinks my party has been uh, wrong for being so sort of defensive about immigration. I think we need to recognize this is actually a moment that the American public is demanding that we pass some new tough laws. uh, And that is not representative of everybody in my party. Senator Lankford is somebody who has spent a long time studying the border. He's been down there you know, dozens of times. He knows the statute inside and out. He brings... So he demonstrated that from the beginning. Yeah. James is somebody who, you know, has expressed a lot of interest in in this topic for a while and has learned it well. Uh, he brought that expertise to the table. Um, you know, cinema, obviously her skill is producing compromise, right? She you know, sits in that room as someone trying to bring James and I together, right? James James represents the conservative right. I represent the progressive left and cinema is trying to figure out a way to get the two of us on the same page. She's got her own independent thoughts about what needs to happen on the border, but she is also somebody that is you know, very squarely focused on getting a result. She's the, she's the one that's got an interesting uh, electoral uh, uh, issue this year. Did that ever come up in the negotiations? Were you guys sensitive to that? Well, she talks about Arizona all the time. So yeah. everything that she brings to the table is educated by the experience of immigration in Arizona. But um, I'm very personally close with Kirsten and not more than once during the last four months did I talk to her about her election. What um, what was your relationship with progressives like uh, doing this? I heard from a lot of activists who were concerned that because you didn't have a history on this issue that, you know, oh, oh boy, Murphy's going to sell us out here. Yeah, I, I can understand why people looked at me with skepticism because I haven't worked my entire career on the issue of immigration. Um, and I'm also a white guy from Connecticut. Um, yeah, race became an issue. Race and ethnicity became an issue. People were complaining that there, there was no prominent, there was no um, Latino or Latina involved in the negotiations. Yeah. Listen, I- Did, I, did that bother you? Well, listen, I understand where people are coming from, that this is an issue that directly impacts and affects Latinos, both in the United States and those that are coming from Central and South America. And I you know, understand the need that people have to make sure that voice is represented. You know, all I can tell you is that throughout the process, I was keeping in touch with you know, my Latino constituency in Connecticut. I was talking to Alex Padilla, who's a close friend of mine, uh, sometimes every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, so I, you know, I know the perspective that I'm lacking inside that room, and I try to compensate for that by being closely in touch with Latino leaders that I 
um, that I respect. But listen, I so I, I generally understand why some people would you know, wonder why I was in that room. I, I do think that I've gained a recent reputation for being able to work with Republicans and being able to hammer out big, tough compromises. I, I have a relationship with Lankford, a, a pre-existing friendship and working relationship. And once he was the appointed Republican, uh, I think given the ability I have shown to be able to get these deals done and given my relationship with James, uh, it made sense for uh, the two of us and, and then with cinema to be the team to get this done. One, one question on the on the timeline here. Was there a moment I mean, I think everyone watching this was actually pretty surprised by how quickly things turned once the text came once the text came out, as you point out, the twenty to twenty-five. But I also have to say the history of these deals is the closer they get to to, to language. If you look at 2013, the more the right wing starts to get agitated. Now in 2013, it passed the Senate, but by the time it passed the Senate, the worm had turned and it had no chance in the house. With you guys, the worm turned a little earlier, maybe at the end of your the tail end of your negotiations, but obviously by Sunday night. Did you was there a moment during those negotiations and especially towards the end this year where you realized, oh shit, this this is history. History is going to repeat itself again. It doesn't matter how far we go on this issue, how far we move to the right. It's um, they, they want an issue, not a, not a solution. I mean, I, I I am probably way too hopelessly optimistic and naive for this business, but <laughs> it's probably why I'm a good negotiator because I just refuse to give up. Uh, that moment for me was Sunday night around 10 p.m. Yeah, you were I, still hopeful. When we released the text, I thought that was a, a tremendous uh, achievement that no one thought was possible. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that that bill was never going to- Yeah, we all did. Em- Every day, it was like, we're going to see the text today. We're going to see the text. But on Sunday night, it was pretty extraordinary to watch the MAGA movement and the anti-immigration right burn that bill down to the ground in the hopes that it wouldn't be alive by sunrise. I mean, the fury from the right that night, from Stephen Miller to Republican senators who were against the bill before they ever read it, um, showed me that this was just a white-hot priority for the right, that they were not going to let Democrats and Republicans get a bipartisan deal. And by the time I went to bed on... I remember texting that exact sentiment to cinema that night on Sunday night before I went to bed. And I knew she was already in bed because she goes to bed early. But I texted her and I said, they're going to burn this bill down by the time we get up tomorrow morning. You texted her on Sunday night. Yeah, on Sunday night. I said, they're going to burn this bill down by the time I get up, by the time we get up tomorrow morning, aren't they? And I I Um, knew I was sending the text into nowhere because she goes to bed early and gets up early. What time does she go to bed? Well, she gets up at, you know, four in the the morning, you know, uh, to... So Wait, why um, does she get up at four in the morning? Because she's an athlete. She works out. Um, I know athletes uh, who don't get up at four in the morning. So yeah, well, I don't know if she gets up at four, but she gets up very so what early. What time does she, she go to bed? I don't. She, she, I just. I, I, I. She is not awake at eleven at eleven thirty p.m. <laughs> right, when I am enough. normally yeah. doing my political worrying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I. So I. I knew when I went to bed on Sunday night that um, 
there was a route on and that we weren't likely to survive it. And then it was, you know, the next, the next morning when some of our sort of strongest Republican supporters started to come out against it, it was clear what was happening. And it just built and built and built. Do you remember the first time Trump threw gasoline on the fire um, to sort of kick this all off? I don't. Was that a moment in the negotiation where you're like, uh-oh? Yeah, no, because I, I, I wouldn't have been, I would have been totally nonplussed at that moment. I mean, this was my, to the extent that I was reluctant to do this, it was because I knew, as every reasonable person knew, Donald Trump was going to oppose whatever we. You built. knew that. You thought, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah, knew this. Yeah. I said it yeah. to. I said it repeatedly to James and others. All right, so said, you weren't naive about that. No, no, no. I knew yeah. Donald Trump was going to oppose it. I assumed that. I, I mean, anybody that is has any political antenna should know that Donald Trump's going to be against a bipartisan immigration bill. But I kept on being told by Republicans that that didn't matter. That that they would survive that that they would push through it and there would be just enough Republicans to support this that we could get it across the finish line. So when Trump came out against it, I had already priced that in and I had assumed, because they told me this, that our Republican colleagues had priced that in. They clearly had not. Were you disappointed that Langford himself uh, on Monday after that uh, GOP Senate meeting um, essentially bailed? He did not bail. He stood up on the Senate floor and defended that thing until the end. But he said he said that uh, he said on Wednesday we would you know he would support everyone voting against it to give people more time. No, no, he was out on every TV show all day Monday, all day Tuesday, defending this to the last minute. Well, you may be yeah. referring to one. Com- yeah, I'm talking one about frustrated comment post, he made. But, but but if you but but. If you were watching TV yeah. on Monday and Tuesday and you were watching conservative TV on those two days, all you saw was James Lankford, a lone righteous man standing in the wind defending a bill that by that time he knew was going down. Um, I think one of the one of the things that keeps me in this business despite all of the bullshit is being surprised by people. I went into this negotiation believing that James Langford was an honest man, was somebody that could deliver. But even he surprised me by standing up for this thing until the very end, despite all of his colleagues walking. And and so James is wrong about a ton of things. He and I disagree on a ton of really important things. But I thought the leadership and the courage he showed was pretty remarkable. So your respect for him that obviously grew through this process is undiminished in terms of how this, how he dealt with just the whole party coming down on him. Yeah, it grew. So I mean, it grew. And it, listen, I'm going to – he's wrong on – Choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's wrong on healthcare. He's right. wrong on democracy. I'm going to fight him on nobody, all that stuff. Right. Nobody thinks you're agreeing with him. But on this, like but on this, but yeah, it grew. Like I just, um, you know, I saw that with John Cornyn uh, during the gun debate. I saw that with uh, James Langford for all of the shitty, terrible, Weasley behavior that's being modeled by Republicans today. I think it's really important when Republicans like 
James Langford and John Cornyn, and, and even Mitch McConnell sometimes um, show the country that a backbone and caring about what's right is is still in vogue in a small slice of the Republican Party. You think he's sacrificed or at least jeopardized his career by taking the stand he took, knowing what we know about you know Republicans uh, in the last uh, few years, and you know standing up uh, against the direction of the party. Especially when Trump is guiding that direction, it just depends on whether you think this fever is ever going to break. Yeah. Um, if 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 Trump or Donald Trump Jr. is in charge of the Republican Party for the next fifty years, then yeah, James probably didn't make a great call. But I don't think that's true. I think there is a very good chance the Republican Party becomes a little bit more normal uh, once Trump loses this fall. And if that's the case, James Langford is going to be a leader in that party for a long time. Um, what do you think about what, what did, what about people are very interested in the, in the three of you and how you sort of all worked, uh, together. And there's always a lot of intrigue around Senator Cinema. What did you learn about her that you didn't know, uh, <coughs> essentially, you know, living with her and James for all this time? I mean, how much time did you guys spend together? How, what would you estimate? Uh, you know, this wasn't like staff doing all the work. You, the three of you were in the room. Oh yeah, no. If you negotiate with James Langford, you uh, are negotiating text, not ideas, with James. You're doing right? like commas and. Uh, you, 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 we we spent uh, this is like two weeks ago. We spent forty for the three of us, or just the three of us. We spent three of us spent forty five minutes on the phone talking about the difference between presents. At the southern border versus attempts to present at the southern border. We did two hours on the difference between the words unusual, exigent, and emergency. Wow. Uh, no, and like senator, senator, it's not this senator, senator. Yeah, 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 no, this is like this is unlike a negotiation. I've never been part of a negotiation like this in which you are negotiating every line of the text with your other principal colleagues. No, let me take that back. Not every line of the text. Um, we, we were negotiating many lines of the text, uh, directly with, uh, with our colleagues. Our, th- this bill ended up being 280 pages. Our staff did an enormous amount of work here as well. Uh, yeah. So, um, y- y- you know, the average day, you know, started with some texts and phone calls with James and Kirsten to kind of set what we were going to try to accomplish that day. We spent the middle of the day normally in person, sometimes with staff, sometimes just the three of us. And then we would normally spend that evening on the phone as well, trying to you know, decode what happened that day, trying to smooth over um, you know problems that came up. Um, Kirsten James spent a lot of time on the phone by themselves. I spent a lot of, t- t- I-, I spent less time on the phone with James myself um, but a lot of time with Kirsten. I remember this tells you how long we've been negotiating this bill. I was over Thanksgiving. For some reason, I drove back to Connecticut on my own and my wife and kids flew up, uh, the next day. I think I needed to get a car up there. And I spent the majority of that drive on the phone with James, uh, not negotiating any specific text, just kind of talking through potential solution sets, what we might be able to do, what we might not be able to do, hearing about his conference. I mean, it's it just sort of an example of like like every amount of free time that I had over the last four yeah. months was devoted to this negotiation in some way, shape, or form. Was the 
pressure just enormous to get something done? I mean, what was it like going through I that? I thought a lot about, you know, the similarities and differences between the gun negotiation and this. There, there, the pressure in the gun negotiation was very personal, right? Not, I'm not saying to me, like, it felt very personal for the victims and for the moms and dads that I know. The stakes of this were in some ways much bigger, but yeah. they were global, right? Uh, wh- whether or not we succeeded or failed had something to do with you know, a war on the other side of the world succeeding or, or failing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you certainly, you know, had a sense of gravity and I, you know, have a, you know, I still to, you know, this is two days later after the collapse, I s- still have this deep sense of worry and failure um, and, and, and a wonder about what the consequences are of our agreement not being able to land in the way that we had hoped it would land. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What was the mandate from the White House on this? So that was obviously a big surprise to um, political observers, how all in Biden was uh, by by the end of this, at least. And every statement he made was very clear. He, he wanted a deal. He wanted a deal. And he was willing to go pretty far to the right for him, especially considering where he was in at the point of the Democratic Convention. If you go back and read the convention language of your party in, in 2020 on this issue, is not that deal that you guys put together, his his first uh, comprehensive immigration reform proposal uh, in in twenty twenty one. He's moved a long way. Um, what was his? What were his instructions? Well, I don't think you're a terribly good leader if you don't change your position based on emerging circumstances. Yeah, nobody had planned on there being ten thousand people showing up at the southern border this winter. And when that happens, you have an obligation to respond. If we just stuck to our position from 2013 or even from 2020, that wouldn't have been real leadership. And it certainly wouldn't have been leadership from the White House. So the White House was clear. They needed tools to deal with the current emergency that was happening at the border. But they were also clear that they were not going to accept uh, most of the most draconian Republican proposals, for instance, expedited removal in the interior. That was a red line. A transit yeah. ban was a red line. Uh, safe third country proposals were a red line. The White House also was really clear that if we were going to do things Republicans wanted, there had to be important priorities for Democrats. Um, the White House was instrumental in helping to get the uh, agreement on 250,000 new visas, which I don't think a lot of people saw coming at the beginning of this uh, negotiation. And then lastly, you know, the White House was 
really focused on protecting the one parole program that has worked. And that is the uh, program that allows them to bring in Haitians and Nicaraguans, um, Cubans um, into airports after they've been vetted and partnered with an American family. Republicans clearly wanted to get rid of that program. That was one of their top priorities. The compromise in the end did not touch that program. And that was a clear red line for the administration. What was the most difficult thing for the White House to um, agree to? I think you'd have to talk to them about that. Yeah, you, you were you were in well, the middle of this. Well, I but I was the parole stuff. But we, yeah, but I mean, I th- that's that's a that's a question of priorities. So that's a question yeah. they should probably uh, they should probably a- answer. Well, just in all right, the, I think the hardest thing for yeah. all of us, yeah. was accepting that we weren't going to get. Dreamers or a pathway to citizenship. Did you tr- was that and f- forgive me if this is a well ventilated issue, but w- did you try in the beginning? You, you brought that up early on, right? A- a- absolutely, we did, and you know we contemplated whether we could do a bigger deal in which um, we got dreamers on the table, but also other elements of HR two. Um, in the end, that was not going to be a, a viable basically swap, like pure swaps. In the end, that was not going to be a viable path. We were going to have to do something that was more targeted. You think? If, do you think in the current climate, given what just happened, that deal that you just described would have been a um, the same thing would have happened? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I now believe that the that this was inevitable. I mean, I. I now see it totally clearly in a way that I didn't see yeah. when I was sitting in the room. There was nothing we were going to come up with that was going to pass. Well, it raises the question. If Biden had just had gone out and said, you know what, HR2 for the supplemental straight up, <laughs> straight up deal. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is this could this easily could have been the same outcome. Well, HR2 is a distinct utopian, anti-American piece of legislation. I guess there is a world in which uh, had you evicted from the United States every single non-white American, Republicans (laughs) might have gone for it, but that wasn't happening. Who, um, just so we understand the, the sort of personalities involved, who were the key people in the White House that were shepherding this along? Uh, the negotiators in the room uh, were Schwan Zagoff, the head of legislative affairs, uh, and Natalie Quillian, the deputy chief of staff, who inside the White House has the portfolio of border security. Uh, but we were on the phone, especially at the end, nearly every day with the full White House leadership team, including uh, Jeff Sines. Did uh, What about the president's involvement? Yeah, the president was involved. He talked to Senator McConnell and Senator Schumer uh, regularly throughout uh, throughout this process. Did you get the sense he was absorbed in the in the details of what was being negotiated, or was he sort of delegating it to, to staff? Oh, I think he was regularly being briefed on the details. I know many of the conversations he had with Senator Schumer and with Senator McConnell were um, about the details of the negotiations, down to the people that were in the room. The the common view of the political incentives here from the White House's perspective, which is uh, the one that Donald Trump eventually adopted, is that it's not just the 10,000 migrants crossing uh, every – that spike, um, but 
that politically um, he was highly incentivized to come come up with a compromise here. Um, how much did that come up in the discussions with the White House? Well, the White House wanted to get a deal because it was the right thing. But, but it also like would help his reelection. Yeah, that's yeah. the White House was in the room because it was the right thing. Um, I know everybody, you know, wants to believe that everybody in this business does stuff for political reasons, but we do things. Well, that is our system. Our system is to incentivize you guys to do things uh, that are uh, popular and help you get reelected. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but that wasn't the frame of your question. Your frame was that there was some independent motivation to do it for political reasons because it helps them get reelected. You are right that the frame of our Government is genius in that it causes us to do good things. And when we do good things, we should get reelected. But the motivation is to do things that are right for the, for the, for the country. Do you think just on, on the politics of this, the way that this collapsed? Um, and now I really am talking about sort of the, the crass politics of it. Um, do you think that it changes the dynamics this year in terms of how the, it looks like it's going to be Trump versus Biden, of course, in how that discussion on immigration goes? Like, What do you think this allows Biden to say when he goes to the public and people raise the issue of, of the border and, it's, and, the, and, the, and the crisis there? Yeah. I, I mean, you I, obviously saw his statement. This yeah, way. this uh, – listen, I didn't, I didn't go into this negotiation for – Political advantage. I went into it because I thought we needed to do something. Nobody goes good. into negotiating immigration deals for political advantage. It seems. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> um, uh, yes, all the people close to me thought that I was idiotic for <laughs> deciding well, to do this. Your other issues is doing gun deals on guns. Well, that's so, what I thought. I said yeah. I thought I, you know, I got I got a deal done on guns. Yeah. First time in thirty years. How hard can immigration? Yeah, be? you should really tackle abortion next. The answer is much harder. Um, yeah, I, I mean, listen, I. I believe it is time for the Democratic Party to go on offense on immigration, which is something that we are generally allergic to. But I think that the only silver lining to what just happened here over the course of the last few days is that it exposes the Republican Party as fraudulent on the issue of the border. They had a bipartisan deal that would have made a huge down payment on fixing the problems of the border, and they ran for the hills because they don't want to fix the border. I think Democrats generally are pretty reluctant to lead on issues of border security. But guess what? The people in this country care about this issue. They're not going to stop caring about this issue between town and the election. And we now have proof that Republicans don't want to solve it. And we have proof that Democrats do want to solve it. And we should talk about that. We should lead on that between now and the election. And I am pretty confident in talking to the White House that they are going to do just that. Does that mean that we'll hear from Democrats and perhaps uh, the president a slightly different um, messaging when it comes to immigration this year versus 2020? I think it will be infused with this other clear contrast um, of competence and normalness. I mean, I think folks are really worried about giving power to Republicans given what a mess they are. And this was a giant mess, right? They asked for a bipartisan border deal. They got it. Their Republican leadership negotiated it. And then none of them would support it. 
So I think that you can talk about the border as an issue that Democrats want to solve and Republicans want to exploit. But I can also I also think you can sh- show what just happened here as more evidence that Republicans probably can't solve anything if they're in charge because they are constantly fighting each other, even on the issue that they all claim to be united on, which is the border, even on the one thing that they say they care most about, that they talk about at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they can't even get on the same page on the border. That is a pretty damning indictment of how broken their party is. I think that's going to be a very big theme between now and the election. Did you see how your comments about McConnell being in the room writing this are uh, being weaponized against him by people like uh, Lee and Johnson? I mean, I wasn't giving editorial it's just <laughs> no. I'm not saying you're responsible yeah, for that. It's just, but um, it's just there's true. an open rebellion against him now, just for. Uh, listen, the, I yeah. I enjoyed working with Senator McConnell's team. I thought yeah. they were good faith actors. They helped get this bill to the point where we could release it on Sunday night. I just think it's really worrying that the leader of the Republican Party can't deliver for more than four votes. I mean, no one is in charge over there right now. That is not good for the country. That's not good for the Senate. That's not good yeah. for Democrats. You can't make policy if no one is in charge. Well, and there like, is someone. Isn't Donald Trump in charge? You can't make policy if an adult isn't in charge. And there are no adults in charge right now. I mean, do you think uh, McConnell's leadership is is threatened over this? Well, they need to figure out who's leading. Not that you. Not to, know, it's not, not up a concern to me. for you, of course. It's not up to me who leads them. They just need someone to lead them. We can't make policy if the Republicans don't have a leader. This is sort of unrelated to this, but you're a young man. Um, I think by uh, 2028, the party is going to be looking for a lot of new leadership. Have you thought about higher office? I guess. I guess I've gotten to a place in the Senate now where I can help make it work. I feel super privileged to be able to, you know, be trusted by my colleagues to be in the room for big things like guns and immigration. And that doesn't give me a great desire to leave. I, I get the sense that a lot of people- <laughs> Wow, to say that this week. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I started by telling you I'm a hopeless optimist. I am. Like, I mean, we got really close. We, we unveiled- a massive comprehensive border reform package. We didn't get it passed, but we got further than anyone in 10 years has gotten. And I just still believe in this business. I still believe in democracy. I still believe in the Senate. You know, a lot of the people who end up going and running for president tend to be people who are like super frustrated by this place. Like I'm not- You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. I still yeah. think it can work. And I- actually think that I'm one of the people who can help make it work. So that keeps me here, man. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do for like mental health and wellness? And so like, I'm sure cinema's got some tips, but. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you what I did do. um, And and this was a good decision. Um, So I knew (laughs) on Monday night, I knew what was happening on Tuesday, right? I knew Tuesday was going to suck. Texted cinema. Yep. So on Monday night, I told my 15-year-old that he was skipping school and coming to work with me on Tuesday because I needed a little emotional support. Wow. And so on Tuesday, I had my 15-year-old with me all day. 
you know, he's just like, shadowing you, just hanging out, just hanging out. Yeah. I told him put on a suit. You don't need to wear a tie. You can wear your Converse All Stars, but you just got to be with me today, man. Like you know, you're like one of my best friends. You got to just be here. So yeah, I got through the worst day Tuesday in part because I made my 15 year old skip school so that he could just wow. kind of be an emotional crutch for me. <laughs> what was his What was his takeaway on what happened? Because you're you're not. That's not a day of like dad's big day of achievement. That's no. a day of yeah. You, you know this thing. Yeah, I, I brought him. To, to I brought him to work for- to watch me burn and you know fall to the ground. Uh, yeah, it's a good, you know, probably years from now, I'll, you know, ask myself whether it was a smart thing to have him with me. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think he, he, he had to live with the, you know, the choice I made. I wasn't around for Christmas or, uh, Thanksgiving wow. this year. Um, you know, we took those two days off, but we didn't do all of the things as a family we normally do for the holidays. And I still have two school aged kids. So, you know, I wanted him to be here just to support me, but I also wanted him to just be able to, you know, see the gravity of what we were doing, see how many other people cared about it, right? Uh, that it, that it wasn't just my, you know, pet project or priority. And, uh, you know, I think the only way you survive things like this as a family is to, you know, not hide what you're doing and not hide the stakes of what you're doing from the people who are most affected by it, which is, you know, your, your family. Sounds like the kind of thing you do if you don't want your son to go in the family business. Also that too. Thank you All for right. doing this. Thank you, man. Appreciate right, it. Thanks. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. You can email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>